Good morning and welcome back to the Isle of Faces. You are back here for part five of A Feast for Crows. Hello, I am Sir Buckley. I welcome you to a windy, fairly cloudy England slash Isle of Faces. We had the heat wave last week. We had the storms at the weekend, so I guess this makes sense. We're getting the full range, but don't worry. There's just enough sun to keep me going, keep me energised for what is probably a slightly longer episode because we have four big old chapters to get to. As always, I'm sure you've been listening or watching along to Valor Aurelius over on History of Westeros. So you have my great thanks for appearing here as well over on the Isles. Always a pleasure to have you. Always a pleasure to hear from you. You know how to get in touch with email and Twitter and all of that stuff. I'm not going to repeat it for you. You can also check out our Patreon if you would like to have a look at the different benefits and little goodies on there. While we're talking about that, let me give my obvious, of course, constant thanks to all our patrons, but particularly to KM, to... Jennifer T to Archmaster June, healer of the Lesser Poxes. Special shout out to Archmaster June. She's been sending some lovely messages of late. To Lady Raj, Mistress of Horse. And to Lord Commander Namian Darklin. All of you are so very appreciated for your constant generosity and support. And like I say, you're always saying lovely things. So we thank you and it's our honour to keep uh, giving you these goodies. So yes, if anyone else would like to have a look at that, feel free. If not, just listen along as always. Before we get into today's episode, today's big episode, only one piece of news, you probably can guess it already. As I mentioned last week, I was lucky enough to be invited over to the Giants R Radio Westeros this Saturday on their live stream, which again, I know you've all been listening or watching along with. This was part nine off the top of my head, and we were talking about, well, the Winds of Winter, but more specifically, the Winds of Winter prologue and who it could be, what could be happening, how that's going to link to the rest of the story and all that good stuff and I had a blast I have to say I think you can probably tell by my constant smile I, I was worried I wouldn't be able to get any words up because I was so amazed that Lady Gwen and Yoke Boy who are heroes of mine as I've mentioned again many times I was worried I wouldn't be able to get any words out that I'd just be there kind of sat listening to them because well who wouldn't luckily I did get some words out I managed to retain my consciousness a little bit and yeah we talked we talked Bindon Beefish we talked the Brotherhood Without Banners we talked, well, largely how dark winter's going to be. And uh, luckily, Hope Boy let me go on my little rant about wolves. Not even all that I had to say about wolves. I really want the wolves to be in there. I want to make that clear. I had pages and pages of notes that could have made this a two-hour episode. I really had to restrain myself and not uh, not just talk the whole time. I might even put out an extra bonus episode for you of just extra thoughts about the prologue and Winds of Winter and all this kind of stuff. We'll see. I might not have time, but... Uh, look for that that might be on the way in your streams soon enough but really really good episode really fun to be on luckily no storms on their end no storms on my end either we got through it nice and clean so if you were there in the chat i know some of you were and uh, it was good to talk to you good to see you. if you were there and watching live thank you so much it's coming out as a podcast soon enough and well i know you're going to keep watching the guys are having a well-deserved break for kind of a monthish but when they come back i'll be there i know you'll be there as well so yes Thank you, Rayleigh Rustos, Lady Gwen, and Yoke Boy. I adore you in every way. I tweeted about it the next day. Still blows my mind that I've apparently reached a level where these people who got me into this series, got me into this fandom especially, want to talk to me about The Winds of Winter and The Song of Ice and Fire. Wow. Could not be more honoured. So thank you, thank you. That made me incredibly happy and uh, hope to be back and hope to have you guys on the aisle as well. Okay, so what about today then? Let's go through our four chapters. We have Sam 2, Jamie 2, Cersei 4, and Victarion 1 slash the Iron Captain. So two twos there, and it seems 
I mean, it's been a while since we've spoken about Sam and Jamie, so that's going to be interesting. But that Jamie-Cersei combo in the middle today, I think that's why this is going to be a long episode, because important facts for Jamie, but that Cersei one. Oh boy, yes, it's the Small Council episode. And, oh well, I think I'll mention this later, but in my mind, this is kind of Cersei's peak. This is where she's really settled into the role, and we get to see how bloody awful she is at it. And of course, Victarion, the Iron Captain, is setting us up for next week's big, big, big chapter of the Kingsmoot and it's an introduction to a new character. Not even our last introduction to a new character, that's just how Freaky Feast is, but we'll get to that later. Why don't we start here at the beginning with Sam 2. So I thought up a good name for this Sam chapter and it's Same Sam, Different Place. Yes, poor Sam, the man who just wants to sit in a library and kick back is unfortunately back out on the road after spending the majority of his time in Storm on the journey from hell. He's back out again. So if we're going to talk about travelogue chapters as we have, then I guess this one does really qualify as Sam, Gilly, Eamon and the reintroduced Darian are constantly on the move as they sail through choppy northern waters. Which, by the way, we have not yet sailed, so add this onto our huge list of places we have not yet been before. And while we're talking of location, this is the last chapter we have anywhere above the neck in this book. This is the most northerly we're going to be for a long, long time. And that's weird, isn't it? Because we're so used to Winterfell and the wall and above the wall and everything else. So that's just completely cut off from us now. Everything is southerly based from here on out in Feast. And speaking of sailing, yes, it is ship time. We mentioned we'd get way more ship chapters in this new stage. Sansa kicked that off for us when we sailed up to the Vale, but these are more in depth. This is more exploring the actual experience of being on a ship. We have more of those coming in Victarion, with Tyrion, with Quentin, and with Sam again on the other side of Bravos. So lots of ship talk to be had. And considering how non-physical Sam is as a person, or at least that's how he sees himself, he does end up in a lot of physical situations, doesn't he? He's already been on the Great Ranging. He's had the Force march back. He's then marched on Crasters to the Wall. And we're going to see him become more of a sailor as we go here. But why do I say same Sam, different place? Well, it's because we're going to open this chapter with everything that's wrong with the trip. Sam being seasick, Sam being worried about drowning, Sam having to remember his abusive father again. It's very similar to the Sam we were introduced to on that march. Why this chapter, and Feast as a whole, is great is because we can actually see the small differences in himself, even if Sam can't. He's much more optimistic, he's much more confident, he just gets on with a lot more stuff. And again, he might not be the best at recognising that, but others around him, and we as readers, do. It's those others that strengthen Sam and give him purpose. And while this chapter, yes, is technically travel-loggy, which we should remove from our fandom's vernacular as a bad word, does not equal bad chapter, it also has some incredibly important plot beats for Sam and the wider story. Yes, we have our reintroduction to Darion and who he's become and will become in the future. We get a little hint about Skagos with our first sighting, but way, way more important than that, we get the tale of Aemon first sailing to the Wall with none other than Brynden River's Blood Raven, and we get the realisation of what Jon has done to Gilly, which is obviously just mind-blowing for the Lord Commander's best friend. A lot of this chapter is about Sam being sneakily stronger, more optimistic, like we say, yet still finding things are worse than they originally thought when they left land, and still finding the strength to continue on and be a mini-leader to this little band. It's a great chapter, so let's get to the text. We'll kick off with a quote. The sea made Samuel Tarly greensick. So from the off, we start with the negative. And this isn't a rarity in Sam chapters. Go back through Storm and you'll find the same thing for a lot of his starting sentences. Here in this chapter, it immediately continues with the second paragraph 
where Sam also includes drowning as his main focus. He's thinking about being ill, he's thinking about drowning, and in a moment we'll have memories of Randall Tarley just chucking him in a pond as a way of teaching him to swim. All of it is clearly negative. But why does that come up first? Why are we discussing that? Well, it's because George knows character voice. That's why. And the negative stuff is always first with Sam because that's how he views himself and the world he's in. That's how low his self-esteem is. As with the journeys in Storm, it is Gilly who makes the difference. On the march, Sam had no one to put a brave face on for, no one to try and protect, no one to spur him on. Although, that's kind of a disservice to Gren, to be fair. But he did find it more in Gilly in the march from Craster's to the Wall. And it continues here with him getting out of that negative line of thinking and focusing on something else instead. Sadly, at the moment, Sam believes all his efforts to be in vain because Gilly is still very upset. He's trying to cheer her up. It's not working, obviously, and he thinks that's a failure on his part. For rereaders, we know the true reason. First-timers and Sam himself will have to wait just a little bit longer, but we're going to get there soon enough. What Sam does click about Gilly is what a huge moment this is for her, even if we remove the terrible separation from her child. Like we've said before, and we'll say over and over again because she is so damn amazing, Gilly's universe has already been broken once. She was raised in a hut and basically grew up figuring the tree line was at the edge of the world, as Sam will note himself midway through the chapter. Now, not only has she come across the wall and come across real castles and armies and everything like that, now she's out on the open sea with no view of land at all, or eventually she will be. How absolutely mind-shattering must this be for someone like Gilly? Yet she handles that, and the baby thing, with more strength and grace than anyone has any right to do something like that. Sir Aerys Hokart had the right of it last week. The women are the strong ones, and Gilly is jaw-droppingly strong. Here's another quote from Sam here. The water had gotten in his nose and in his mouth and in his lungs, and he coughed and wheezed for hours after Sir Hyle pulled him out. So before we move on from this beginning here, I want to pay special attention to this quote. Let's remember our chapter sequencing first off. Remember, Brienne was our final chapter on the last episode, so this Sam chapter comes directly after that, giving George an opening for some good old sequencing. This memory means a little more now that we've actually met Randall in person and seen his cruelty up front like we discussed last week. Not that it wasn't disgusting enough just in memory form, but you can also now include Sir Hyle. If these chapters weren't next to each other, it'd be more like, Sir, huh? Who's that? But George doesn't get the opportunity for such strong connections in this book as much as he did in the previous, so that's nice. But let's look at this quote specifically. Throwing a child into water to learn how to swim, that's not that uncommon, people still do that. Normally in you know, a swimming pool instead of a pond, but still. But now we have this extra info, both from Sam and Brienne, we can just imagine how careless and cruel Randall would have been, how much scorn he would have laid down on Sam for not immediately being a natural swimmer and instead coughing or sputtering. And we can see where those feelings about water come from. It's another real abusive part of his past. And all that ties in with his further thoughts he has here about his journey, about not wanting to become a maester and definitely not wanting to see his father. As we discussed when John brought it up, Sam should really want to become a maester. Okay, the sight of blood and the corpses thing, that's, okay, legit, lots of people would have trouble with that. But otherwise, it's basically the perfect profession for him, other than librarian. But because Randall's cruelty is so imprinted on both body and mind, Sam can't see past that, and the life of a maester is forever tainted for him, thanks to his father's influence. Thankfully, instead of giving too much of his thoughts over to his father, Sam returns to his newfound optimism by focusing it on the others as he gives a little rundown of his companions and what supposedly awaits them. For Gilly, a place at Horn Hill away from the memories of Craster. To be fair, this seems like the worst deal of the three to me personally, knowing what we do of Randall, but Dickon is supposedly a better person and Sam thinks well of his mother and sister, so I guess that would work out well. Of course, Sam doesn't know about the baby switch yet, so he doesn't realise how sad this ending would be for Gilly regardless where she actually ends up. But it is kind of funny he thinks about the baby perhaps showing an aptitude for arms. Gilly's son might have anyway, thanks to Craster, but you'd have to think that Mance's definitely will, 
given the skill that Mance himself displays in dance. And in terms of Gilly going that far south, you've got to wonder how many wildlings have actually gone that far down Westeros, gone as far as Old Town as Gillywell, as anything other than slaves. A handful, maybe, if, if that. Gilly is making history. Aemon's supposed happiness is obvious and sounds quite lovely. We've already seen Old Town as a setting, and we can definitely imagine Aemon being there and having his cider next to the river out in the sunshine, so that's sweet to dream of. And Darien? Well, we've not seen Darien for a long time, but remember, he was once part of the gang of friends that Jon made back in the beginning of Game of Thrones, just as much as Gren or Pip or anyone. Ironically, he was the first one to point out Sam when Sam arrived on the wall. You might also remember Jon and Darien's friendship ending on a sour note when Jon was throwing his tantrum about just being made a steward and our ranger. That was the last we saw of Darien, so perhaps Jon is trying to make up for that with this appointment as the new recruiter. Or maybe we just need a new recruiter. It does mean we get a Yoren mention, which is always great because we love Yoren, and they are only going to become more rare. It's been a long time since we've heard that name from anyone save Aya. Just a quick aside here, we likely mentioned this before, way back when, but having a single man as a recruiter is a fairly large weakness of the Night's Watch setup, I think. Okay, John is up against it where he needs every man at the wall, if he can, but sending a group of five or eight or whatever is probably going to increase your actual net gain, both by those people keeping each other alive or by ensuring that no one deserts, as we know Darian is going to try and do. It also makes it a lot easier to know when your recruiters have died, or if someone has uh, deserted. They never found out the truth about Yoran, that's just a mystery, and they just have to assume he's not coming back, he's dead. So they have to wait an extra long time before sending out a new one. If you have five, and even three or four are slain, the fifth might get the news and any recruits back to the wall. As it is, this is also a sign of John being still new in his role. A recruiter like Yoran was undoubtable because his loyalty had been forged ice hard by the years, although it is worth mentioning he apparently got the job when he was much younger. But Darian is still young and dreamy and clearly not the man best suited for this role, but I guess this is how they learn, Jon has got to make some mistakes. To bring it back to Sam, this is a really endearing moment for him as he thinks on these three potential happy endings and uses it as motivation to keep going and be strong even if he's not getting what he wants. He puts it like this, that was Sam's solace, I'm going for them, he told himself for the Night's Watch, and for the happy ending. I really like that quote. It makes Sam an even better person than he already is. Now, the caveat is that rereaders know none of these endings come true. Gilly, she doesn't get exactly better or worse. She still ends up south, just not at Horn Hill, but she's, and she's still going to have the deep sadness over her child regardless. But she does connect with Mance's son and with Sam himself, so the jury's out a bit on that one. But for poor Eamon, he never makes it back to Old Town and his peers. And Darian not only dies before bothering to recruit anyone, he also betrays his oaths, to the Night's Watch and to Sam's group. But it's not important that Sam is wrong in his guesswork, it's important that this is how he's choosing to see the world and the motivation he is using to be strong. He is doing it for other people, because he's brilliant. Now the connection there is that re-readers know that Aya will kill Darian and that she will interact with Sam, however briefly as well. First time readers aren't to know that yet, but George really, really gets our imaginations going when Sam starts detailing their voyage to Bravos. A big titan? A lagoon? Little boats? Yes, we've seen that place. We're suddenly whisked back to Io 1 and our first introduction to Bravos as our first time reader minds make that really, really important connection. Hang on, Sam and I might be in the same place and at the same time. This isn't a pairing we've ever dreamt up before, I would imagine, but now there's suddenly a thin piece of string connecting Aya and John, our most awaited reunion in the whole series. So our minds start running away of themselves as we want to do as fans of this series. What if Sam clicks who Ira is? He did it with Bran, he knows who that was. What if he tells her all about John being Lord Commander and how to get to the wall? What if he writes to John, telling him his sister is alive in Bravos? Imagine how much that changes. 
hey, what if Sam just turns around and takes it back to him? Probably not, but you know, this is this is what I mean about our minds running away. And that's how desperate we are for these two to be back together that we will just take any possibility and run with it. Unfortunately, re-jaded re-readers know this to be untrue. We can never be so lucky as all that, but it's great for George to get our motors going and persuading us to read on. Sam gives us a little overview of the first section of their journey, particularly on Darian singing and how dark the days are for Gilly and the baby. This might be the worst time of her life so far, which is saying something, let's remember where she's come from, but the most interest comes to us when Eamon begins remembering his youth and detailing how he got to the wall in the first place. Let me read you the quote. He sent me north from the Golden Dragon and insisted that his friend Sir Duncan see me safe to Eastwatch. My honour guard, he called them. One was no less a man than Brynden Rivers. Later he was chosen Lord Commander. Blood Raven, said Darian. I know a song about him. A thousand eyes and one. Whoa, okay, what a bunch to unpack right there. Firstly, let's start with the most mundane part of it. The name of the ship. There's always a big deal when a dragon, any sort of dragon, winds up in the north. And quick aside, but if it ever does turn out any of the Lannisters are half Targaryen, and I hope it doesn't, they should absolutely be called the Golden Dragon. But more than that, we get a dunk mention. Wow, yes, we love dunk mentions, don't we? And actually, there are only three of them in the entire series, and we've had two. This is the last one. Jamie has two in um, one chapter in Storm of Swords, and we get this one here, and that's it. That is it for Sir Duncan the Tall, unfortunately. Thank the Lord we have the Duncan Egg Tales to uh, get us through. So I don't think I need to tell you how valuable those are in piecing together the life of, well, our favourite dunk. And again, we are next to a Brienne chapter here, so just bear that in mind. Supposedly, we will see more of Dunk in the North in one of the future novellas, and, well, you would think we're going to find out loads more about him in the next Fire and Blood, but it's cool to get that mention and make the connection between two of our favourite characters, isn't it? And it's also strange to think that Eamon was double John's age, was in fact nearer to Ned's age when he first came up to the wall. That is just weird to consider. And just as interesting, Blood Raven, the one we basically have confirmed is sitting in front of Bran Stark somewhere above the wall. He was on this ship as well, and he was once Lord Commander. That gives us plenty to think about or make connection to in terms of John or the Lord Commander's Raven or any of that stuff. But the much better thing to theorise on is exactly how some conversations might have gone between our beloved Maester and the former Hand as they sailed ever northward. Is there connections about Rhaegar's eventual prophecy and what he was up to? Do they know something of the larger story? I don't know. I don't know if we'll ever find out, but I like to think so. Sam does some remembering of former voyages himself as he recalls sailing to the Arbor at age 10. And we have some more great connections being made as we discover Sam was bullied by the Redwine twins, those who we probably remember best as horror and slobber, and have actually seen a fair bit of during their time as, as captives, like captives really, in King's Landing. And they're now there just kind of freely with the whole Reach contingent. It goes to show George's ability for complex or multifaceted characters because Horace is painted as a as a bully here, very convincingly but he's also credited in recent times with saving lady tanda stokeworth's life in the bread riots so there's nothing clear-cut with george you can be good and bad as a person in this in this series and again i have to bring up chapter sequencing we've just had brienne tell us all about her painful interactions with the supposed nobility and chivalry of the reach and how cruel those people can actually be even in a friendly setting and now we're getting much the same from sam and in terms of finally having met randall and you might remember me saying he's Tywin on a smaller scale, I submit this quote to you. Aye, a pinch of pepper, a few nice clothes, and an apple in his mouth. Thereafter, Lord Randall forbade Sam to eat apples, so long as they remained beneath Pacta Redwine's roof. Huh, insecure much, Randall? Someone tries to make uh, a joke about apples, and now you can't even see your son with one because you're just so worried that someone's attacking your ego. Can't we just see Tywin doing this exact same thing? 
any threat to their machismo or their egos by way of their sons and they can't handle it whatsoever. What an incredibly stupid reaction to have. Don't eat any apples, some might compare you to a pig. That mixed with the fact that both fathers were humiliated by their failed attempt at finding betrothals, which is what Sam was doing there, that really sets off the comparison for me. I really think Randall is just a lesser version of Tywin. And Horace, he also seems like someone Randall would have enjoyed having around. That's who Sam would have been switched for. But it's mean to split twins up, so I think this is the, the best all round. Now, where are we on our journey? Well, we get our very brief glimpse of Skagos. It's essentially non-important for our purposes here, but those among us who like to leap on such things just enjoy it being established a bit more and noted by a main character in the hope that we will be going back there later. That's a lot of theories about where Rickon is, where Davos might end up. That's personally what I subscribe to for what Davos will be doing in the Winds of Winter. And it would be cool if Rickon and Osha were there because then Sam could claim to have some type of connection to Bran, Rickon and Aya, just leaving Sansa to go, which isn't inconceivable. Both of them in the south, theoretically, both will head north again, so maybe they'll get to meet too and Sam will get the whole Stark bingo. Personally, I like the note here that a Skagos rebellion a hundred years ago claimed the life of a Lord of Winterfell and his men. That could eventually turn out to be foreshadowing for Rickon's return, helping to end either Roose Bolton's occupation of Winterfell or even Stannis's. We really don't know the outcome of Rickon returning. I had to talk about that a lot in the old castles, but the journey continues. Only becoming more miserable as it goes. But in amongst the rain, we have this beautiful image of friendship and loyalty and respect given to us as Maester Eamon insists on sitting up on deck even while it pours down. And it's beautiful in the view of an old man who's been frozen up on the wall for over half a century and is really taking the time to experience the world while he still can. It's also beautiful in his loyal steward staying next to him and getting just as soaked, even if he doesn't really understand what's going on here. And of course, when Eamon wakes, it leads to this, the most referenced part of this whole chapter, I think, and for good reason, because it's a hell of a quote. Eamon's blind white eyes came open. Egg, he said as the rain streamed down his cheeks. Egg, I dreamed that I was old. Yeah, absolutely, positively in the top 10, maybe even top 5 of emotional lines delivered in A Song of Ice and Fire. Not just this book, the whole series. Egg, I dreamed that I was old. It is absolutely heartbreaking in the most bittersweet, beautifully aching ways and Sam's next thought is that he doesn't know what to do and I agree with him how can we even begin to think about this line I don't want to analyze it because I, I just love it as it is and I think if you're anything like me you'll have emotions strongly strongly enough related to it so we can just leave it perfectly alone as it is and just appreciate it as a, a hell of a line but what it does do is push Sam and Gilly into action when Eamon takes a chill and the first of many storms come upon them and again we have to admire Gilly when Sam finds her sobbing and yet she leaps right into action to keep Eamon warm. Even when Sam makes an unwitting faux pas about her son, she handles it amazingly well. Unfortunately, those storms keep coming and everyone stays gloomy. Darian becomes more and more of an ass on every page, especially as he finds some booze and gives hints of what Bravos Darian's going to look like. Sam worries about the dangers of the sea, the dangers of the crew, and even of Darion in terms of danger to Gilly. So that's raising our heads and getting us really worried, isn't it? Because we know what George is capable of. But Sam doesn't cower away from that possibility of such danger. He keeps his knife sharp and he stays by Gilly's side. He stays the man whose growth we've enjoyed witnessing. And the chapter doesn't exactly get lighter at its close either. Sam, at his wit's end now with this storm and kind of cabin fever setting in, finally has to have Eamon spell things out for him with this quote. That babe will still be Dallas' son and not the child of her body. Even in this world of Westeros and beyond, where any number of terrible things are just accepted as the way things are, this idea of the babies being switched is almost too monstrous to comprehend. 
Heartbreakingly, Sam goes through everything they've been through together before arriving at his ultimate conclusion. One that is such brilliant writing from George in terms of connecting the thematics of the early chapter with the end. No happy choices and no happy endings. He wanted to scream. He wanted to howl and sob and shake and curl up in a little ball and whimper. That's how badly this realisation affects Sam. What's interesting is Sam working out the logic in the decision. He sees it as John being willing to sacrifice one baby, who is apparently worthless, for another. Whereas John is obviously of the opinion that the fact that the baby at the wall is Gilly's son and not Dallas will keep him from being burnt and no babies will have to die. That's his thinking that this, yes, this is devastating for all adults, but this way no children die instead of having one child die. Sam is seeing it as one baby doesn't matter and the other does. And that's how harrowing this decision is to him. I've got to say, I have always been worried about John's line of thinking because clearly not enough people know the truth about this switch at the wall. And I might be misremembering here, so feel free to correct. I know Val knows, but really that's not enough because Melisandre, the crucial factor, definitely doesn't know. So there's a huge risk of Melisandre just doing some quick horrible burning while John is busy. What happens if John leaves Castle Black for any sort of time? Or, you know, if something else pretty bad puts him out of commission? Hint, hint, wink, wink. We know what happens at the end of Dance, don't we? Something like, um, death, perhaps? I have this horrible vision of John being resurrected or awaking and discovering that Gilly's son has been burned in an effort to bring him back. Let's just imagine what that is going to do to his soul, which is already going to be questionable considering what's happened to him. Just imagine that knowledge being given to him. Uh, okay, it's not going to be much better if it's Shireen instead, like many people theorise, but at least John didn't specifically place Shireen in harm's way. Val knows that who's going to believe her if it really comes down to it. They're all going to believe she's trying to save her nephew and nothing else. So while Sam is focusing on intention, I'm not sure if it's going to make much of a difference and things could really, really work out badly at the the wall for Gilly's son and, and Dallas as well, possibly. Yeah, that's rough. The whole thing is so wild that Sam can't even lend any thought to finally knowing why Gilly is acting the way she is. Instead, he's facing his own extreme guilt over placing John in a position to make such a command, something he thought would make the world a better place. Sam thought he was doing well and it's actually turned out he's played a role in what's happened to Gilly. Again, it's brilliant writing considering all the focusing on the possible happy endings and how Sam used that as motivation, but now he's come to the conclusion it's the opposite. There are no happy endings. And this is before he actually finds out the true fates of Aemon and Darien, so things are going to get worse here. I think we should take note that Sam really could have gone very dark here with this revelation. This really could have destroyed him. Everything that's happened to and will happen to him as well. But luckily he doesn't have that kind of soul and he still has Gilly and Aemon around for now to keep him afloat. I think we should also note Aemon uses the title Lord Commander and then Lord Snow when referring to this decision about the babes. Never uses the word John. And some of that is because he gave the kill the boy advice in the first place. I think some of it is also because it's good to help him not ruin the memories of young John, whom he obviously cares about. This isn't easy for anyone, despite best intentions. We finish with Sam looking at storms out on the horizon and thinking it's only going to get worse. We can look at that in the context of Sam, or even a feast, but I wonder if George is trying to get across a much larger point about the whole series, something I spoke about a lot on the, the live cast on Saturday. Despite how terrible and awful much of feast and dance are, remember that George has warned us winds is going to be much, much worse before whatever victories, and big air quotes there, victories, we can scrub from Dream of Spring. That actually fits in well for a chapter where a typically negative man finds strength, now is going on for his companions. He does it now, he'll do it again. Sam keeps growing, even if the world around him keeps getting darker. So let's leave the sea now, we will return later. Let's go back to the capital instead as we go in for Jamie 2. 
For someone so central to Feast in general, it seems weird we're this far in and have only just reached Jamie's second chapter. I don't think if you'd asked us to guess at the beginning, we would have expected to reach Sam 2 before Jamie 2. But remember, from our first Feast episode, we discussed how Jamie has a slow start in this book only to really pick up frequency later on. And this is good evidence of that. It seems we've been away from King's Landing for some time between Cersei 3 and Jamie 2, even if it's not a lot of time in the, uh, in the actual book there. According to the timeline that we always reference, it has been about two weeks, so Cersei has really had a chance to get her claws into the city and the war effort and try to instill her own policies and make her own appointments, etc. And it's going to be very, very fun as we see how terrible that's gone over these next two chapters. Interestingly, Jamie 2 takes on a mirror effect to earlier Cersei chapters, especially that one that we just had Cersei 3 last week. He gets a conversation with his uncle Kevin, even covering some of the same subjects. We get his thoughts on the tower burning that we discussed in the last chapter. There's Tainer talk all before Jamie does his own trip into history yet again, before wrapping up the chapter back in his own unburnt tower to discuss some similar subjects to Ariane and Sir Aerys Ogart again like last week. And what's really astounding is this is our last Jamie King's Landing chapter, essentially. He will start off his third chapter here, but it will also leave there, so this is our last full King's Landing experience. And I knew his leaving came early in terms of his feast arc, but just two chapters, wow. Okay, so this is our really our last chance to see him plus Cersei, plus the city that's had such an effect on him. It's pretty major, isn't it? I personally can't wait for him to get back out in the Riverlands. We can't ignore how big of a role the capital has had in his changing. This is where everything happened to him in his youth and now fully grown and well more than fully grown we can see how it's affected his change as well that plus it that he will be really splitting from Cersei this time perhaps forever we've got no idea if he'll ever come back to the city or come back to his sister although most of us assume that he will at least back to Cersei as we also assume that both will be very very changed by the time he does whether city or Cersei I don't think Jamie's going to come back to what he's used to that also signifies it's going to be the end of our two POV staple for King's Landing ever since we very first arrived in this city we've had some combination of Ned, Aya, Sansa then Tyrion and Sansa, then Tyrion and Jaime, or now Cersei Jaime in terms of what POVs we're getting in the city. That's going to end. We're only going to have one now. So to be left with just one lens, it's going to be a very different experience for us, just one kind of view of looking at the city. George does offset that slightly by giving us Kevin in the epilogue of Dance of Dragons, but that doesn't really count, does it? And I wouldn't expect that to stay true for too long in winds, that kind of uh, one POV structure. There's Griff, there's Ariane, possibly one of the Stark sisters, even Brienne or Jaime will come back to this city, or further in the future, Tyrion, Victorian, Daenerys, those type of people. I think they will return. But let's get to the actual chapter instead of looking too far into the future. We kick off, as it seems we have a bunch of times already, with our actual goodbye to Tywin Lannister. Yes, this is it, I promise. Last time we have to put up with his earthly body, even if we've still got plenty of his legacy to deal with going forward, especially when we get to Tyrion. As we mentioned before, Tywin is leaving the city in a regal fashion, much like he entered in the throes of war. The difference being, he went in alive and comes out dead. Tyrion has already noted in Storm, he also came in on top of the world and left crawling through a dirty tunnel. But at least he got out alive, didn't he? Jamie's going to complete the trio pretty soon. He came in broken and dirty. He isn't going to be exactly healed when he leaves, but he's improved, much in body and soul. He's tidied himself up a bit as well. And leaving with Tywin is the main contingent of westerly lords, westerman lords. Sure, it's only 100 crossbowmen and 300 men-at-arms, so 400 doesn't seem all that many to lose in the grand scheme of things, but cast your mind back just a little bit to Clash of Kings, when we knew Stannis was coming and every man was worth, well, a whole lot more. 
How valuable would an extra 400 men have been back then for that assault? Wouldn't they come in useful if the city was to come under attack again in the near future? Perhaps by a young Griff and his supposed father, or even a girl with dragons. Yes, we've reached another huge aspect of the Feast King's Landing storyline. How the city becomes weaker and weaker in terms of military strength as we go. I don't think that's discussed enough about King's Landing. A lot of these seeds are going to be set right here in this chapter and in Cersei's next one. And 400 men will seem even more valuable as we go. Even for something like dealing with the sparrows, which we'll also cover today. Besides, it is not mere numbers being lost here, but commanders of value as well. All these western lords would have been immense use to both Cersei or the city in general, but are now leaving, they're going home. The majority of them aren't going to be used by the crown at all, and a large part of that is because of Cersei's already suffering rule. The best representation we have of that is Kevin Lannister. Note that, like Aemon a moment ago, Kevin refers to his nephew as Lord Commander rather than his actual name. This is an official conversation, he's basically saying, not a chat between relatives. He does the same with Her Grace in place of Cersei, and he's basically just acting cool all over. Jamie has clearly come for this talk with the best of intentions, and after being unable to resist himself, making his usual jokes, he shows that he is actually making more of an attempt to save everything than anyone else. Here's the first quote for this chapter. Strife between Lannister and Lannister can only help the enemies of our house. Okay, yes, that is a rather obvious sentiment. It's also one that needs to be said, and it is absolutely true. Varys has realised the right of that That's note there. The Tyrells as well, most likely. Peter Baelish excels with it. He knows exactly how to turn the Lannisters against each other. The worst part of it is the only two Lannisters who we've never seen in conflict with each other were two brothers, and one of them is now leaving the city in a casket. For argument's sake, we should also mention Tom and Marcella, who have genuine affection for each other, but as we've mentioned last week, the great game seems destined to destroy that relationship. While Jamie tries to get his uncle to stay, for unlike Cersei, he is not so blinded by pride and knows how important and useful this man could be, his individual worries do sneak in thanks to Lancel being just behind them as they're riding along here. He's already had to watch Cersei stand arm in arm with Sir Osmond, now Lancel is back around as well, so Tyrion's lasting taunt lives on as Jamie's mantra, the one we see repeated over and over again. Fucking Lancel and Osmond Kettleblack and Moonboy for all I know. Impressively though, Jamie seems to separate his actions from his insecurities the most of the three Lannister children, in this case at least. He can convince himself it was all a lie from Tyrion and gets on with the task at hand ex instead. That doesn't erase it as a mantra or a worry, this will forever be bothering Jamie and we're going to revisit it in a minute anyway, but being able to put it aside for the greater good is admirable. As Cersei did last week, Jamie talks with Kevin about supposed Sandor and the raid on Saltpans, whose details we are unfortunately made to hear yet again. I really wish we weren't made to. And again, despite intentions, things don't go Jamie's way. Here is a quote. You would do well to keep your knights around you. His uncle gave him a cool stare. Is that a threat, sir? A threat? The suggestion took him aback. A caution? I only meant Sandor is dangerous. This really makes you feel for Jamie. As has happened with Brienne and Storm, with Loras, even with Edmure later on, Jamie trying to do the right thing will often result in people assuming he is trying to do a bad thing. It's a prejudice he has been suffering ever since he became the Kingslayer, and I think this one cuts a little deeper because he is genuinely trying to care for his uncle. On Kevin's side, it seems he's using the opportunity to finally say what he thinks of Jamie, as he did with Cersei, now that Tywin is gone. In fairness, it's not so harsh with Jamie as it was with Cersei, because Kevin, he probably likes Jamie more anyway, and his huge misogyny obviously isn't a factor here. But overall, he's just sick of dealing with these two and wants to be shot of them. Considering what they've been like for 99% of their lives, or 100% if you're Cersei, you can't really blame him. Still, even with that blow, Jamie manages to rein the conversation back to the realm, making one final plea for Kevin to remain as hand. How does his uncle respond? With this. Your sister knows my terms. They have not changed. Tell her that. 
the next time you're in her bedchamber. Ooh, okay, Kevin, let's forget the coolness part. All gloves are off, I think. He's being pretty straightforward now, isn't he? Yes, I don't think he's worried about being brought up by Tywin for saying these kind of things. And that presents a problem. Lots of them. But I think it's significant now of all the things that could come out of this knowledge from Kevin, Jamie actually picks out the danger to Kevin himself because of who Cersei has become. Although, if he really admits it, Cersei has always been willing for people who know too much to die, hasn't she? But this is a clear worry. This is danger. And we can see how much she is worrying him already. Jamie isn't concerned about himself or even really Tom and Marcella. He doesn't think of them. He is thinking of Cersei and how bad she is becoming. That strife between Lannister and Lannister line, that's all the more appropriate now. And from there, Kevin rides off, never to return again in Feast. Jamie's going to spend a lot of his own arc basically chasing Kevin's footsteps at Darry and Riverrun culminating in Jenna Lannister comparing the two of them later on. But it's Cersei who Kevin will next interact with because the next time we actually see him on page isn't all the way until Cersei won in A Dance of Dragons where he meets her in her sept cell. I think we know what he does next in terms of Cersei and that book but then before you know it we have his epilogue at the end. So he really gets to make quite the impression on Feast here at the beginning but then no more. Jamie, obviously having failed in this mission with his uncle, contents himself with mocking Lancel in order to gain some ego points, leading to this rather telling line. I pray for you, cousin, and for her grace the queen. May the crone lead her to wisdom, and the warrior defend her. Why would Cersei need the warrior? She has me. It's like old Jamie there with that line, isn't it? Jamie uses this as an opportunity to convince himself again that Tyrion was lying, and Cersei has remained faithful. Of course she hasn't slept with anyone else. She loves Jamie. But I think it tells us however much progress he's made, she still looms large over his spirit. He still can't quite escape that, not at this point of the book anyway. As Jamie re-enters the city, we get some really important updates as to what's happened to all the other standing forces. Most strikingly, the Tyrells are gone. Yeah, this is a very different King's Landing to the one we had a couple of chapters ago. That whole army that rode out of the Reach to save King's Landing is dispersed, half with our beloved Garland and Lady Elena to Highgarden, half with not-so-beloved Mace to Storm's End. This is going to be really important for the overall war picture in terms of the Reach's reaction to the Ironborn, uh, Garland is really going to need that half of an army. And it's also nice to have the much underappreciated Storm's End back on the radar, especially given its importance towards the end of Dance and possibly the beginning of Winds as well. But it's also important for the city. That busy, bursting at the seams King's Landing that we discussed so much in Storm when everyone is arriving basically is already emptying, really emptying. And some really important characters have left. We will see Mace return eventually, along with Massis Rowan and the other Reach Bannermen, but that's it for both Elena and Garland. They never return to the page, in this book or the next. That's a bit surprising, I think, especially in terms of Elena, and definitely when we remember how big a role she had in Joffrey's death, I think if you asked someone how much of the series she's actually in, they would say more than the reality is. I've spoken of my love for Sir Garland as well, and both of them are now relegated down to Highgarden with no real clue as to how they will react to Euron or what is coming for them in Winds. I really hope we get to find out, perhaps even with a final meeting with Willis Tyrell as well. We also learn it's not just Tyrells on the way out. 2,000 Lannister men are already waiting to hop across to Dragonstone to take out Stannis' last stronghold, or one of them anyway, which will also end up getting rid of uh, another Tyrell and Loras later on. And the remainder of the Lannister army, they've already gone. This is just what's left, these 2,000, and they're about to hop it as well. So when Jamie says the city feels empty, he is not kidding. It must feel deserted. We've been speaking about 400 men being a big deal. What about 2,000? What about the rest of the Westermen, the entire Tyrell army? All of them, just gone, like that, in a matter of days. This is a completely different city to what we are used to, and it must make that clear. Of course, the kicker to this is that Cersei is over the moon. She, she thinks this is brilliant, I've got rid of them all. Hardly any more Tyrells, all the old lords who anymore talk to her father. She's finally managed to shift the old folk out and been allowed 
free reign of the, the house, basically. Exactly what she's always wanted. Now, in the interest of fairness, I assume Cersei thinks those 2,000 men going to Dragonstone will only be there a couple of weeks and can then come back. But still, Cersei has actively encouraged the weakening of her own city, both in terms of pure numbers and in military commanders, just so that she gets to be in charge. This is one of the biggest crimes of rule that we can lay at her feet. She is willing to ruin her own position and get rid of potential allies just so she feels more in charge. She endangers herself, her city, and obviously all within. She puts her ego not only in front of this city that she's supposedly ruling and protecting, but in front of her own grip on power, even if she doesn't realise it. It's completely naive and entirely self-defeating. Yeah, we're going to have some Cersei rants today, just you be ready. Bear in mind, even as Jamie returns to the castle and rides past the yard, reminds us of all the smaller lords or individuals who are still in the city, a decent chunk of them are going to be going as well when Jamie leaves in his next chapter, along with another thousand men or just under. That's incredible, it's an even bigger loss of more knights or useful commanders like Adam Marbrand, he leaves with Jamie. Cersei is really willing to just cut off her own nose, and again, she cheers for it. So let's actually meet the woman in question, shall we? Let's bring her into the chapter. When we see her, she is A, drunk, and B, making fun of Jamie's hand again. Standard. Let's have a quote. He missed like that, but these days, he seemed to miss like everything his sister did. That feels pretty important as a quote, because that sense is only going to increase for Jamie. Oh, and she's also laughing in Pycelle's face, we should note. It's not always laughing, but something cruel towards the Grand Maester is pretty standard for her now. The news of the day is that Lola Stokeworth has delivered her child, and Bronn has chosen to name him Tyrion, as, essentially... A huge middle finger to Cersei and everyone else. I like that this is seemingly Bronn showing a mark of respect for his former employer, even if they were never quite friends. But I do think it is also him inviting some sort of chaos to Stokeworth in order to help him climb the ladder a little bit. I think he knows that Cersei won't be able to resist reacting. We shall have to send the darling boy a gift, the Queen declared. Won't we, Tommen? We could send him a kitten. Oh, this kid, man. Yeah, he's an absolute heart melter. Every time we see him, I just love him. We could send him a kitten. <sighs> Long live Tommen. But this news matters little to Jamie. Instead, it puts him in mind to truly analyse his sister and begin comparing her to the biggest shadow of his life. Here's a quote. Jamie knew the look in his sister's eyes. He had seen it before, most recently on the night of Tommen's wedding, when she burned the Tower of the Hand. The green light of the wildfire bathed the face of the Watchers. She is crying, Jamie had realised, but whether it was from grief or ecstasy, he could not have said. And then later he has this. The sight had filled him with disquiet, reminding him of Ares Targaryen and the way a burning would arouse him. We've already discussed a bunch how Jamie will come to view his sister in this book in terms of her volatility, her decisions, her ego, her cruelty. And with this wildfire stuff, she becomes more and more like the big enemy. The big enemy that Jamie essentially gave his life to defeat every day. In this instant, conjoined by the wildfire watching, Jamie steps back in time to really visit how terrible a person Ares was not just to the realm at large, but members of his own family. The passage about Raela is intensely painful to read, and I do think it's one of the biggest shames of the series that Raela will probably just remain essentially unknown to us and little more than a name. It would be really great to get some happy memories of her as a person, but I wouldn't hold my breath. We already know from Storm that Jamie was hugely affected by having to bear witness to certain atrocities, and this one may have been the worst of all. Let him be king over charred bones and cooked meat, Jamie remembered, studying his sister's smile. Let him be the king of ashes. Yeah, we can see how bad this is getting for their relationship. If Jamie is beginning to compare Cersei to someone who was capable of what Ares did to Rhaella and what he planned to do to everyone, that really says something. Something that will clearly see influence Jamie at the end of the book. I think the main thing he's dragging out of this is that Cersei will care more for herself than the the realm at the end of the day in its most extreme possibility as Ares did. Though Jamie doesn't say it, I think he's clearly worried about the sexual element as well here. If Cersei can get turned on by wildfire as Ares did, 
What does that mean for standing there with Osman Kettleblack and the hours after? Yeah, that is going to bother him. But getting back to the present, Jamie questions Cersei's apparent trust in Taina Merriweather. Cersei, in a first for us, admits that Taina is on Marjorie's side, but also that she has controlled the situation by using that knowledge to her advantage. I used Taina to feed the little queen what I wanted to know. Some of it is even true. Cersei's eyes were bright with mischief, and Taina tells me everything Maid Marjorie is doing. Does she? How much do you know about this woman? Yes, it's very confusing this part, isn't it? And absolutely indicative of how complicated and damn near unplayable this game actually is. Is Taina reporting back to Marjorie? Is Cersei capable of using her as a double bluff? Or are Marjorie and Taina completely aware of that fact and are sort of triple bluffing Cersei, as I believe? This kind of politics is a complete minefield, and Cersei's overconfidence is a good sign She's got no idea where she's stepping. It actually seems like she's got worse at this type of thing from the Cersei we saw in Game of Thrones and the Clash of Kings. She's just unravelling and basically she's getting worse the more powerful she becomes. The info Taino has given her about Elena and a chest of old gardener coins certainly makes it seem like Cersei is being played. That and her confidence in her knowing Taino's mind merely because the two of them are mothers. Maybe she's right, maybe she's wrong. Judging by the end results though for Cersei, I think we know where most guesses lie. Cersei also gives us an update on what's been happening further north and the storylines we'll focus on more during Dance in relation to Roos Bolton. What we learn here, possibly for the first time, is that Freys will also be going north, including two we know in Hostine and Aenys, both participants in the Red Wedding. So first time readers are definitely hoping that they find some comeuppance in the north. And don't forget, Jamie did interact with Aenys while at Harrenhal as well, so that's a little note for you there. But the main focus returns to Kevin and the handship yet again, with Cersei giving us another example of her genuine belief that anyone who doesn't adore her is intrinsically awful or useless, as she claims Kevin is old and done. Let's have this first from Jamie. Here I thought it was about governing the realm. I govern the realm. Seven save us all, you do. His sister liked to think of herself as Lord Tywin of Teats, but she was wrong. Their father had been as relentless and implacable as a glacier, where Cersei was all wildfire, especially when thwarted. So now we're really hitting the nail on the head, aren't we? Jamie goes further, citing her lack of patience and judgement, and Cersei really doesn't help herself with her philosophy on the required strength of hands, which really makes no sense at all. It's the sort of logic a schoolchild might come up with. She doesn't improve matters as we go down the steady list of new appointments, most of whom we're going to be dealing with in the next chapter. Of course Paxter Redwine is going to be a better choice than some nobody for Master of Ships, that's as clear as day. But not only is Cersei flying in the face of Jamie's solid advice that he gives here, she genuinely thinks he's an idiot for suggesting such and that she's actually a mastermind. Here's a quote. Paxter Redwine would be a better choice. He commands the largest fleet in Westeros. Or Rain Waters could command a skiff, but only if you bought him one. You are a child, Jamie. Redwine is Tyrell's bannerman and a nephew to that hideous grandmother of his. I want none of Lord Tyrell's creatures on my council. Tommen's council, you mean. You know what I mean. Yes, a slip of the tongue telling us what we already know. Cersei is already mentally abandoning the pretense that she's doing this for Tommen. This is about her, her council, her counsellors, her power. That's why she wants the young men to boost her ego, or maybe someone like Kybert, who has already proven himself useful to her, but no one else. He seems loyal, that's why she likes him. It doesn't matter whether they're actually qualified or not, or what the wider political ramifications are, it's just whoever Cersei likes. Now, I am a terrible Crusader Kings 2 player myself. I've still got no idea what's going on in that game. But I know enough that important offices can be given to people for political gain. That's pretty basic theory, isn't it? But Cersei completely ignores that aspect as well. In the case of Kyburn, okay, fair enough, he is pretty good at the job, let's admit. But look at the optics of inviting a disgraced maester, a former member of a band who brutalised your people, onto your council. Can you not see what that says about you and the legitimacy of your reign. Well, no she can't. 
Tries Jamie might, it all comes down to Cersei still being really pissed that Jamie refused her and that this particular tantrum is never-ending. She shows off that fury Jamie talked about earlier in the chapter, and before you know it, she's chucking wine cups at his head. Jamie isn't leaving just yet, but this is essentially their split. This entire chapter has been about Jamie thinking about how terrible Cersei is for the city, their son, and the realm, and he really goes full tilt and dresses much of this to her face. But to no avail. We've said again and again there's no repair in this situation. Thank you, Lord, for Jamie. The chapter closes with another scene of Loras and Jamie in White Sword Tower, with Loras doing his best spoiled high school athlete impression, and Jamie actually doing a pretty good job of keeping his tongue for once. Jamie is leafing through the White Book again and lists a number of Kingsguard to Loras. Some of these we've heard about in the saga, more we've heard about in Fire and Blood, but some still remain a mystery to us. You'd think this is going to be an even cooler passage to read back after Fire and Blood number two. I'd like to put down Greatheart, please, as, as the one I want to learn about the most. Anyway, the larger point Jamie is trying to make to Loras, on top of the smaller one about not judging a Kingsguard by how long he lived, but how long his king did, is that fame and infamy aren't all they've cracked up to be. Opinion doesn't matter, the job does. That's what he's learned after all these years having the Kingslayer thrown in his face and all the stuff about broken oaths. He'd do it all again if need be, and perhaps he will have to with Cersei. At least that's the thing. I think that's what he's saying. I'll put my hands up and point out that this ending really confused me in my first couple of reads, and I'm still not entirely sure about it now. Is Jamie bringing up the Kingmaker, who we first came across last week, because he originally had intentions to take control of Tommen and rest him away before Cersei got too bad? Uh, I'd probably doubt that. That's a, probably a too large operation for Jamie. I think when I focus on it now, this is a scene of duality. Jamie is noting that Cole was both good and bad, because that is what Jamie is trying to be now. He knows he'll forever be seen as the Kingslayer and therefore bad because he broke his oaths, even if he knows he was really good. But now he's trying to be good again. It's part of this forward arc of being the best he can be, as he thought last time when he opened this book up. He could just give in and relent to Cersei, but that would make him just bad all over. I also think some of it is recognition that even though he is called the Kingslayer, he could have been a Kingmaker at the time directly after he killed Ares, but he chose not to. That wasn't what it was about. Either way, it fits brilliantly with the upcoming chapters of the King's Moot, where a king is made, and Ariane's kidnapping of Marcella, which is literally called the Queenmaker. So it's amazing sequencing yet again. And also, a part of it is just keeping Loras's ego in check, because he is really on one at the beginning of this scene. That's it now for Jamie 2, but don't worry, we're not going far, we're only skipping across the hallway to Cersei, for Cersei 4. So if we've just had a whole chapter of Jamie showing us how terrible Cersei is, and what she's doing to the crown and city, what better way to follow it up than by seeing Cersei actually doing some ruling, and better yet, thinking she's doing a great job. Yes, strap yourselves in folks, we're headed into Cersei's small council chapter. I think, as I said at the beginning, we can equivocate this as Cersei's peak. This is her happiest chapter, where she really believes she's done her best work with getting rid of the Tyrells, naming her own council, dealing with Dragonstone and Storm's End and all this other stuff. The only rival might be the chapter before her imprisonment, where she really believes she's got the whole Marjorie thing wrapped up, but this here is where Cersei believes she has her best successes and is uh, her most smug as well. And maybe her most disgusting, although we can probably apply that to any Cersei chapter really. We start as we'll end with this constant hope of finding Tyrion has died and that his head will be presented to her. Because, you know, that's a normal thing to want, isn't it? As it turns out, the head presented to her at the beginning is the one of the kindly septum that Brienne met a few chapters ago, so that's sad. We knew it was coming, but... Still gloomy to think how kind and nice that man was, and he met a brutal end purely because of Cersei's bloodlust. Now, does Cersei feel any guilt about this? Does it make her self-reflect? No, she goes the complete other way, claiming she would basically kill every dwarf 
living if it meant she could uh, get to Tyrion. She even notes uh, a child has died because of this and she doesn't really care. So complete sociopathy yet again. What a good introduction to the chapter and our character here. And note, we've already been told about her weaknesses in rule because of her obsessions. These three men who brought the head seem like the lowest of the low, but Cersei still genuinely thinks about raising them to lordship had they been successful, merely because she would enjoy seeing Marjorie uncomfortable. It's ridiculous, and I feel like I'm going to go overboard with saying stuff like this in this and future episodes, but really not. Cersei is just that bad. She doesn't even think of the reaction to making these men lords, or how she inherently weakens the office and title of lord by giving it away in these terms. That doesn't cross her mind. Obviously, she hasn't studied her father's interactions with Vargo Hope. Another quick note for this opening page, the bells of the Sept of Baelor are ringing in mourning. It's a real quick line that's easy to overlook, but even if you notice, you're wondering who they are playing for. And, well, let's skip ahead a couple of pages here, because it turns out the bells are ringing for the late High Septon, and their ringing is getting to Cersei. We don't have this pointed out to us exactly just yet how the High Septon died, but her annoyance at the bells could be a hint to underlying guilt. Probably not, it's just recognition. Anyway, Cersei's victim list is slow at the moment, but it is going to pick up speed soon enough. So far, we've had the two turnkeys that were guarding Tyrion, and possibly Sunel. We don't know if she's alive or dead yet, but she's not in a good way. And maybe the poor dwarves mistaken for Tyrion as well, if you like. That list is just going to really grow and grow. And what should be noted is that possibly all of Cersei's killings in this book, out of all of them, this one maybe makes the least sense. Why kill the High Septon, really? Is her paranoia that bad? Go back and look at their single interaction, or anything else we hear of the man. There's absolutely nothing there, nothing to really suggest he's a legal Tyrion or provides any other sort of danger. Now, to be fair, I think what Cersei is focusing on is if Tyrion, or more to the point, Lancel, has given up some secrets, then that High Septon read does pose a problem. But killing the High Septon doesn't actually solve that, does it? Whoever is raised to the title the next time will still have ears to listen to Lancel or even Tyrion. She thinks Tyrion is still around, so it'd be the same danger, and Lancel is quite capable of writing a letter from Darry, so it's not really solving anything. It's not like she has a plan to fill the void, she just figures whoever's next will be easier. This really is an emotional kill with zero logic, and as we know, it just opens the door for the High Sparrow and Cersei's own doom. We're going to see that equation quite a lot in this chapter, Cersei setting up her own failure. Everyone seems confident that Tyrion will be found, and Kyburn especially has taken a bit of a turn. He's dressed in fine white robes with golden collars and belts. His new office apparently suits him. I think this description is easy to forget, probably because of the show's influence and how he's dressed there. But he also lists down how he has spies all over the Second Kingdoms, and you have to wonder how he's been able to set that up so quickly. If he came over to Westeros during a Game of Thrones with the rest of the Bloody Mummers, that's not a bunch of time to set up an extensive network, especially if you've been riding through a war zone with swords. Why would he even bother at that point? Perhaps this is something he's been doing over many years, although again, you have to question why, why bother? Or perhaps there is an element of inheriting Varys' more official network. If so, I wonder if Varys is aware and still controlling some of the information that Kyburn and therefore Cersei receives. Cersei herself is certainly confident that Kyburn has merely inherited and that Varys had no personal skill at all. It's funny that she thinks this on the same page that she insists Tyrion could still be in the walls, never thinking about the possibility of spiders being in, being in the shadows. Immediately, we get to the cherry of this chapter, the small council meeting. And what a prize it is. We've always loved small council meetings, right back from the frustrations of Ned to Tyrion, kind of running the show, and they dropped off, to be fair. We had the Lannister fighting in Storm of Swords, but this one, maybe it is a favourite. I think we can tell how this thing is going to go by Cersei taking the time to mock Boris Blunt, but more notably, 
is the joy she takes in introducing Kyburn merely because she knows how much it upsets Pycelle. As we'll see in this meeting, out of this whole sorry council, only Kyburn and Pycelle seem of any worth, which is funny when considering they are natural rivals. Of course, Cersei takes note of one of them because he says what she likes and does what she wants, while completely dismissing the other because... Well, that's just because what she does. Another big blunder on Cersei's part is not realising that Pycelle would have come over to her side easily enough. He hates Tyrion for the beard cutting and the black cells and all that. That would do it alone, but they could even bond over Pycelle's love of Tywin, or the fact he thought he was serving her with Jon Arryn's death, but no, because she doesn't like him personally, or that she can cook up any feasible reason why he would betray her, he's no use to her. Yet another mistake that will cost her when Pycelle does regain power at the end of this book. My counsellors. Cersei had unrooted every rose, and all those beholden to her uncle and her brothers. In their places were men whose loyalty would be to her. So Cersei basically confirms what we were saying in that Jamie chapter about how happy she is with how things are going, and how well she thinks she's doing, despite literally describing her own, her own mistake here. She thinks that loyalty is the most important. Uh, okay, yes, it is very important. But to the point of not counting any other statistic, as long as you say yes and smile at me... I don't care what your ability is or what else you can bring to the table. We spoke about that in the interaction with Kevin, didn't she? She doesn't realise what Mace can bring her. She only focuses on the fact that she doesn't like him. That's it. And it really just shows off the... Like, Sissy's thick. She's an idiot. She just doesn't get it. She's got this one-track mind. She cannot comprehend more than one facet, it seems like. And again, it really does seem like she's got worse the more power she's got. We also get the introductions to Autumn Merriweather, Giles Rosby, Orain Waters, and... Harry Swift. And we find out that, as well as appointing them, Cersei has made some changes to their titles. Here's the quote. She'd even given them new styles, borrowed from the free cities. The Queen would have no masters at court besides herself. So this is another clear measure to separate herself from all the men who've come before her. She doesn't want to be linked to Tywin, or Robert, or Aes, or any Targaryen. This is a new era. These are all firsts created by herself. The first Justicar, the first whatever you like, Grand Admiral. Besides, Master of implies being the best of something, and Cersei certainly doesn't want any of those on her council. They're far too powerful and annoying. She is the only master now. Note, she also lists them as her Justicar, her Grand Admiral, etc, etc. Not Tommen's, hers. So again, that links very strongly with that Jamie line we just had in his chat, doesn't it? And what about her final naming of a new hand? Eventually, yeah, we got there. At least Cersei originally intended to give the handship to either Kevin or Jamie, who would be able to do something with it, especially Kevin, but because she got her double rejection, her coping mechanism is pretending that the position is irrelevant anyway because she's got this all covered. Oh, I didn't really want them as a hand. No, I was just being nice. Hand doesn't matter. Yeah, okay. All right, sure. Who needs a hand? Not me, so I might as well give it away to anyone who I think will give me any kind of one-up over Kevin instead of finding someone who actually might be good at the job. She's doing this with what is basically the second most important position of Westeros, and many will argue it's the most important. This is the whole reason that Ned came south, the whole job he undertook. The same with Tyrion and his clash arc. Look at how many stories from fire and blood depended on the ability of the Hand. This position has been a major building block of our narrative. Cersei should, or does, know it's important, yet still just throws it at Harry Swift so she can basically sweep him out of the way. That's why she's giving it to him, because she knows he's not going to make a big fuss, so just tend to be quiet, he'll be quiet. And I might get a little dig at Kevin. It might annoy Kevin. So why not? It's the same with every other appointment. People who agree and stay out of the way. There's plenty of rubbish counsellors throughout the series, especially if your name is Stannis. But most people also have one or two good advisors on top. Cersei doesn't. And she doesn't have the brains to do it herself, unfortunately. I think we know what that means for the future. And again, 
Cersei believes all this is brilliant and she's succeeding and ruling well. She thinks this is all, yeah, well done, Cersei. No one else would have thought of this, just you. <sighs> wow. But we are missing someone, aren't we? Where is Jamie, our Lord Commander? Well, Cersei keeps up with her current trend of mocking him and gets her first round of sycophantic laughter from her cronies, giving us this quote. Good, Cersei thought. The more they laugh, the less he is a threat. Let them laugh. Do we have wine? Standard that she can't wait to get to the wine, but this idea of Jamie posing a threat is more foolishness. Jamie could definitely make himself a, a danger if he wanted to, but he also very clearly isn't doing that. He's trying his best to keep everyone together, basically. But because Cersei is so paranoid, she's convinced herself he is another enemy. She creates her own enemies in her mind and in reality also. The first of the many, many subjects we'll cover in this meeting is the Dornish and the sending of Gregor's head, air quotes again, Gregor, Gregor's head to Sunspear. And we learn for the first time that Balon Swan will be the man to deliver it. So the city is yet further weakened because Balon is one of the best fighters left in the capital and he's basically being used for delivery service. Well, that and his secret task that first-timers are not to know about yet. That's the real reason she's willing to lose him, even if Boris could be delivery boy just fine. And don't forget, they don't yet know that Arisokar is going to die, obviously, so there would be a total of two Kingsguard given over to this task. I understand Marcella's safety is paramount and she wants to get her daughter home, but you'd think she'd want to keep one of the best swords by Tommen, especially if she mistrusts Loris and Jamie. I guess she really is putting her faith in Osmond, isn't she? Talk of the secret task can be saved for when we actually get to find out what it is, but I find it difficult to believe that Balon Swan would consent to murdering Tristane on the return journey. I wonder how much he is actually told, and whether Jamie is consulted about any of this whatsoever. Next up is the Sparrows, and finally we have some payoff from Brienne seeing them go in the opposite direction in all of her chapters. Apparently as many as 2,000 are now in the city, and though not all are going to be fighting men, we can already see the shift of power in terms of the numbers and how many of Cersei's soldiers have just left. Cersei isn't actually even bothered about this issue, she doesn't give it its due attention, instead allowing her thoughts to wander to Orain Waters and his comparison to Rhaegar Targaryen. Here's the quote. She wondered if Waters would shave his beard for her. Though he was ten years her junior, he wanted her. Cersei could see it in the way he looked at her. So the quote in itself, pretty hilarious, the absolute conviction that he must want her and how out of touch with reality she really is. But let's play devil's advocate and consider the chances. Is Cersei right and Rain is making the pretty eyes to stay in the good books until he can get his ships? Or is this just what she sees because she wants to see it and has a real need for ego boosts? Either way, she's certainly not thinking about his actual credentials. There's a real sense of uh, inappropriate conduct in the workplace here. Although, as Cersei notes, it'd be a drop in the ocean compared to what women in positions of power have put up with in Westeros' history. But she does think about making him shave his beard just to line up with Rhaegar more. This just, yeah, it's weird. And there's such narcissistic tendencies on display throughout this whole chapter, really. She was always startled by how differently men treated her when they thought that she was Jamie, Even Lord Tywin himself. Hmm. More on that story, please. I'm going to guess Tywin never did catch on to that particular trickery. And back to your reign. He also claims the Golden Company are crossing the narrow sea in a moment, only for Kyburn to correct him and point out they are still headed to Philantis. So again, he proves his unworth. But back to the sparrows, the actual things she's supposed to be thinking about at this moment. Cersei doesn't care about them because, as she almost says word for word, they are not her problem. This is why Cersei is often accused of having no foresight. She can't even see how these 2,000 sparrows could pose an issue in the future. She's more worried about dragging Tyrion's name through the mud a bit more by declaring him uh, enemy of the, the Sept and whatever else. She just can't comprehend weakness against such people and obviously doesn't give the small folk or history its due. It's maddening to see 
And spoiler alert here for the rest of the issues brought up in this meeting, but this is pretty much how Cersei sees everything, not her problem. That could be her slogan. And now we see how dangerous such a rubbish council can be because they all just nod their heads and repeat, yeah, yeah, good job, boss, excellent decision. It reminds me very clearly of Mr. Burns hearing about his stocks. Yeah, this is the formula going forward as more notes of high importance are raised and more are dismissed. The similar line of thinking comes to the news of the Lords of the Vale and Peter Baelish. Again, not their problem. It'd be cool if they didn't hurt the man that Cersei still considers her little friend and someone who would be of use at her court, but otherwise do what you want. It seems to escape her notice that one of the Seven Kingdoms Plus that she's supposed to be ruling is essentially having a mutiny or a crisis of leadership in any case and is she's just content to do nothing because again, she does not care. She doesn't realise how the one, one stable kingdom that's come out of this war unscathed really and one that is going to be incredibly important in terms of food allocation once winter truly hits is rocking on the edge here. The same way that she doesn't realise what a precedent this sets for lords choosing their own rulers. Now, okay, this is a special case of a region and an underage lead lord, but you get my point. This isn't a good message to send. But that just gets left, basically. Yeah, no, just, I don't want to hear about it. Okay. Next on the agenda is the royal fleet and the Ironborn, and we get a nice page of dialogue showing how useless and out of touch this council is. Half of them have no idea what is going on outside their own city, and the other half don't care. What's hilarious is Cersei thinks to herself, Varys would have known, despite two seconds ago claiming he had no skill or worth whatsoever. She can't even keep track of her own prejudices. The talk of ships leads to the much larger issue of the Iron Bank wanting repayment, and that fits much more nicely into our little trio of ignored problems in the Sparrows, the Vale, and the Iron Bank. Because again, Cersei just shrugs it off, dismissing it as squeaks and squawks. I believe as last week we noticed that Cersei figures all of those who oppose her or don't do what she says are just fools that she has to suffer. There's no okay, he's skilled, but he doesn't agree with me. There's no respect, basically. You either fall in line or you are worthless. It's one or the other. What a, a terrible way to look at the world. It is amazing. There's the lack of foresight, the sheer arrogance of expecting the bank to get payment when she wants to pay, because who would dare suggest otherwise? It's just all the... Uh, uh, it's beyond description, it really is. And this is obviously a monumental issue, not being given proper consideration. We've known about the Crown's financial issues ever since Ned arrived, and Cersei isn't giving it two minutes of her time. As re-readers will know, we can add this to the growing pile of things Cersei has shot herself in the foot with. Firstly, this defiance of payment will eventually push the Iron Bank towards Stannis and keep his campaign alive, so another instance of Cersei creating her own enemies, and then this owed money is used on the new ships instead. The new ships that get stolen immediately by Orain Waters. So double loss for Cersei there. And the worst part about all this is her parrot council just going along with it. Only Pycelle has the guts to suggest that might not be the best idea. Yes, this is King's Landing 2020, where Pycelle, of all people, has become our logical and moral core. And even he does his fair share of nodding along. He's just speaking, speaking out on this particular issue. Phrase next, and another dismissal of the idea the Sparrows are pissed about the Red Wedding. I'm not even sure it crosses Cersei's mind that any of the blame could be directed at her and the crown. Okay, she wasn't actually involved in the planning of the uh, the Red Wedding, but clearly that's not how people are going to see it. But again, Cersei no, does not think it that way. The Frey issue doesn't really get explored here, except for the idea that they could eventually get involved in the coming Frey civil war. And again, it's just mind-boggling to even consider getting involved in such a thing. What is that really going to gain you? Much more interestingly... We get a Davos Seaworth mention. Hey, yes, it's been ages since we've heard from Davos. And really, for first time readers, we haven't got a clue of what he's been up to since he left Dragonstone. So this is a real key moment for us. 
What a shame Cersei has to spoil it by saying that she has already ordered his execution prior to consulting the council, by the way, proving exactly what this collection of sycophants is worth. And that makes our blood run cold, doesn't it? We know we aren't going to see any Davos chapters, so we have to get pretty concerned. Later, we're going to have confirmation that Davos has indeed died. Oh, George, why so cruel? We have to wait so long to find out that this is actually his biggest ever fake out. First-time readers have to go on thinking a fan favourite has not only died, but been killed off-page and unceremoniously by a treacherous Northman that, when the last time we met him in Clash of Kings, was all in on House Stark. On the flip side, for rereaders, we know Wyman's plan to trick Cersei is definitely working, so that's cool. Talk of the North leads Pycelle to bring up Sansa, and I like to think he's doing that just to piss Cersei off, which in turn leads to Cersei completely losing any composure and going off on a violent tirade about Sansa. When we find the imp, we will find the Lady Sansa too. She is not dead, but before I am done with her, I promise you, she will be singing to the stranger, begging for his kiss. An awkward silence followed. Have they all swallowed their tongues? Even this council of yes-men can't summon their voices when seeing the violence and anger of this woman promising to horribly torture and murder an innocent teenage girl. And alright, even if they don't consider her innocent, this is a teenage girl. You can see why Jamie can make these connections to her and Ares, can't you? Keeping it in the family, Cersei next wants to talk about Jon being made Lawn Commander at the Watch. And that's a cool note of timing that the rest of the world is catching up to events up on the wall. What's funny is her thinking of Jon in the same chapter as she's thinking about Orain looking like Rhaegar. Of course, she immediately dismissed Jon back in the day because of his station. Oh, Cersei, if only you knew. In fairness, this is one of the rare occasions in this meeting where Cersei is right. Jon has essentially sided with Stannis, hasn't he? Not his fault, of course, he had no choice, and we're going to explore that a lot in Dance, but Cersei's suspicions are actually right for once. It is Kyburn that provides the solution of sending up some relief with the actual course of killing Jon. The actual uh, mission, rather. It's similar in tone to Tyrion's efforts to free Jaime from Riverrun under a peace banner. We'll return to this thread in a moment, but it's interesting that Cersei imagines Jon getting a knife in the ribs when... Well, you know what happens. And Cersei very quickly uh, thinks back to Robert and has this quote. Once, after that sorry business with the cat, he had made some noises about bringing some baseborn daughter of his to court. Yes, how close we came to Maya Stone being in King's Landing. Called her to be of her father, theoretically, but very glad she didn't come just to be murdered by Cersei. Besides, she would miss her mules. Anyway, it's a good reminder, Cersei thinks it's totally fine to murder children. And actually, while we're talking about quotes that uh, rile me up, let's have this one. Neither of the Boltons much would care that she was actually some steward's whelp tricked up by Littlefinger. Okay, right, you've stepped the line now, Cersei, because we know what she's referring to there. She is talking about Jane Paul, and how dare you, of Cersei, of all people, talk about Jane Paul and the fate that you gave her by giving her up to Littlefinger, you evil little witch. Oh, Jane Paul, yeah, not going to talk about it. We'll be there for days. Shut up, Cersei, basically. Just before meeting's end, we get a nice little callback to the prologue when Orain brings up the talk of dragons. Unfortunately, Cersei is even less willing to listen to such rumours than her father was, and news of Daenerys is completely dismissed. I've got a feeling that's going to continue until she's right on the doorstep. So ends what might be the most hilarious small council meeting of all time. Certainly it seems the busiest. How many different points did we fit in there? And do you know why so many got included? Because they barely dealt with any, that's why. Though the meeting is brilliant for showing off Cersei's rule, the largest plot progression here is the hatch plan and continuous deduction of Sir Osney, the third Kettleblack. All of her relations with the Kettleblack brothers makes for a difficult part of Cersei's arc to properly analyse. I don't want to diminish her power over men, but it's troubling to see her have to give so much of herself over to the Kettleblacks, the Kettleblacks of all people, just to get things done. Especially when she could have got such control 
through the usual channels if she just thought about it a bit. It also says something about her losing grasp of her power, which I think we can see hints of when Osney is pretty forceful in declaring what he wants, and we're going to see more of that in future chapters. She clearly demonstrates she's got no idea how to wield her regency and instead has to rely on her looks and beauty, something with a finite time limit, and I think deep down she knows that. But the larger part is that Cersei has settled on the idea of framing Marjorie for adultery and getting rid of her that way. This is obviously going to be a huge plot point going forward. Really, it's the prevailing plot point of King's Landing and it's going to wind up changing everything by book's end. We've already seen Cersei have thoughts and hints about this, but now she's actually putting plans into place. And it happens to serve the double function of getting rid of Jon as well, and likely Sir Osney. Much as she promises him a lordship and her body when he returns, I don't think she's going to be weeping tears if he is executed by the Night's Watch, which you would have thought he would be. Anyway, credit to Cersei here because she does do a decent job of convincing him why this would be a good idea and plays his male ego brilliantly, so you can see why she feels so smug. I was made for this, she told herself. <laughs> okay, Cersei. Finally, we close with one more brief interaction with Taina, whom Cersei is using to set the seeds of her ploy by suggesting the idea of Osney to Marjorie. It's another laugher as she tells Taina to not be obvious in her interactions with Marjorie, and the releases of information, while also not really clicking, that's exactly what Taina might be doing with her. Let's have this last quote. In the dream, it was Tyrion's head they brought her in their sack. She had heard it bronzed and kept it in her chamber pot. Yeah, this is how depraved Cersei has become. She feels genuine joy over her dream that she can pretend she's defecating on her little brother's head forevermore. She truly has lost it. Oh, these Lannisters, oh, this queen. What a chapter for really showing us how terrible Cersei is as a ruler. I think it might be the very best for that particular purpose. And it's actually pretty amazing how quickly Cersei has ruined everything, how... She's thrown her house's long history in the gutter, she's completely weakened her own city, got rid of any potential allies of any use, and throws herself a parade about it with every step. We're actually going to have a break from Cersei, finally. That's uh, probably fitting that we have this chapter, because next week is our one episode with no Cersei chapters, and then forevermore we'll get one in all further episodes. Let's move on to our final chapter of the day here with Victarion 1 slash The Iron Captain. So here we go, new POV time. You'd think we would have reached the end of that by now, but we still have one more POV to be introduced to with our first Ariane chapter to come next week as we enter what is really the hinge of both the Dornish and Ironborn plots in terms of the Kingsmoot and the Queenmaker uh, plan. In keeping with their mirrored structure, which I know I am obsessed with, both of the two storylines hit major points within two chapters of each other. The majority of that is going to come next week in the Kingsmoot and Queenmaker chapters, so we'll save most of that talk for then, but this is still the opening to that little section here. It still feels unfair to me that we only get one superb Asher chapter, but now have to put up with two each from Victorian and Aeron. I do enjoy Victorian a bit more as a reading experience, even though his character himself is as awful as Aeron, and generally I do find his overall arc much more interesting than Aeron's, but having said that, this chapter gets overlooked a lot because of what is coming straight after it, the actual King's Moot. And that's fair, really. Of course, we're going to remember the one of the huge game-changing plot point more, but this one still has some interesting points. It's important for us to get acquainted with Victorian, first of all, as he's going to be important going forward. We get some more of Asher, which is always good, but most importantly, we actually get to meet Euron, potentially one of the biggest antagonists in the series, so pretty major. But who is it we're actually dealing with as our POV here? We have to remember that this is technically a reintroduction. As discussed a few weeks back, we have met Victorian before. 
but only in the briefest of moments. Since then, he's been toiling away on Moat Kaling, getting beaten down by the Kranigman. But while he's been out of mind, he has been playing a big role in War of the Five Kings. That control over Mate Kaelin and the Neck changed a lot of destinies, including those who perished at the Red Wedding. So it's not like Victorian himself is a complete nobody, even if we still know next to nothing about him. Funnily enough, Vic leaving Moat Kaelin with such a small force also has major consequences for the North in terms of the dance storyline and Roos getting back up there, back into the North. Would Victorian and his great numbers have made a difference when Ramsey attacks from the northern side? Probably not, but it would be a darn sight better than what they ended up with. It's worth mentioning here that we do get some details on the actual warfare of the neck in this chapter. This fighting has been happening the entire time, but we've never been privy to it. We will at least get to see some of the after effects in Fionn's dance chapters. I just want to say, long live the Kranigman, I hope we get to see more of them. As a person, we'll learn fairly quickly that Victorian is not the brightest. In fact, it goes pretty far in the other direction, as dim in wits and dim in personality also. He's an empty shell, not too different to Aereo Hotar, really. He's a bland guy who kind of shuffles along, resting on two constant motivations, violence and burying the grief over his wife. Now, he will become a bit more enigmatic, I guess you could say, as we move through his arc, but certainly here, he's a bit bland. We'll see how he's a natural follower on the grander scale. He doesn't want kingship. He isn't seeking love. If he's told he's going to be king, all right, fine. If not, okay, but well, uh, just hope it's not Euron. Basically, that's his motivation here. He's definitely not a dynamic person, although, like I say, he will improve on that mark as we go. Victorian is pretty famous for being a dumb character, so it's fitting we have him placed right next to Cersei, isn't it? What a good ending to this chapter. We start off with lovely Sam and good old Jamie trying his best, and we end with these two. Immediately here on the first page, we are introduced to not only new people like Viterion himself and Newt the Barber, but also another new place in Oldwick and Nagar's Cradle, a place that is clearly important in Ironborn history and culture. As Victorian explains, even though Balon wasn't chosen by Kingsmoot, this is still where he came to be crowned and make his declarations. You know, the ones he utterly failed on not once but twice. So we understand straight away we've got some very important chapters coming up. This is a place of high worth. Straight off, we learn that, unlike his relations, he's not completely confident in his chances for being named a king and even had to be talked into trying. That's certainly not how it normally works with our royal claimants across the series, and it goes against the bullish nature we've heard of Victorian so far. But it's not as interesting as the hint we have of there being a major issue between Victorian and Euron. Here's the first quote. Euron Greyjoy, king of the Isles and the North. The fort woke an old rage in his heart, but still. We've seen Aeron hate Euron, now we're getting the hints it's the same for Victorian. We already know Balon banished him, so we have this whole build-up effect of Euron essentially being the centre of his family in this storyline. He's a gravity well for his countrymen, his family, and probably a whole lot more going forward into wins. And because George is kind of in a rush here to introduce Victorian, we also get these early hints of him being a very superstitious or religious man in regards to the Kinslayer curse at least. That is going to be a huge part of Victorian's arc and his past, mainly as a limiting factor to act against Euron. But we see early here that Aeron's plan of a king's moot works perfectly for bringing Victorian into the game, because it's that dedication to the ancient laws that allows him to be a viable option, or allows kingship to be a viable option for him, I should say. He wouldn't have bothered uh, trying to take on Euron. He would have just said, no, he is older, I've got no claim. Asher would have tried anyway, we know that, but now... Using this King's Moot, Aeron can bring Victorian into the mix as well. For what it's worth, we make a big deal out of so many characters being second sons, I just want to note that here. Victorian and Theon are the only third son POVs we have, and Aeron is only 
is the only fourth. So it's just a weird little outlier group here. We've got the great with the Greyjoys. Moving forward, we get a hint of how strong and large the Iron Fleet actually is. We've heard tales before, but now they're here in the flesh and about to cause some chaos in southern Westeros and beyond. Fleets really haven't figured largely into the War of the Five Kings, save for getting the Blackwater, but they are going to be of higher importance going forward. We have Euron's Raid from the Reach, Paxter Redwines being used to assault both Dragonstone and then Storm's End, and also then maybe save the Reach, and Orain Waters makes off with the Royal Fleet, with Victorian himself maybe being responsible for bringing Daenerys over to Westeros, so they are of much more consideration going forward. We learn that Victorian cherishes these ships above all, which makes sense, and he proves that by being able to name all the others from those who have already arrived, straight off. Some of that is the ever-expanding list of Ironborn lords and families, again contributing to this sense of build-up and a major moment being on its way. And even cooler, we know Roderick the Reader is here, and we definitely want to see more of him, even though we don't really, we don't get that much. We have this quote, No man had ever loved his wives half as well as the Lord Captain loved his ships. Well, that's pretty damning given what we are going to learn about his wives in a minute. It will trickle in through the chapter, but Viterion lost two wives naturally and then was forced, biggest air quotes of the episode, was forced into beating the third to death. The claim here is that his ships are worth more than all of them, and that's probably true, but we're going to learn how much that third one haunts him still. And it's another actual comparison to Eriotar, because he says he's married to his axe, and Victorion, he acts like he's married to his ships. And Asha has a similar quote about being married to her own axe later on, weirdly enough, so that all ties in there. I just want to point out the uh, name of two of these ships here, Grief and Iron Vengeance. That's quite a good way to describe Victorion overall, isn't it? He carries his grief, or guilt, hopefully, about his wife with him, and he uses the desire for vengeance to fuel his actual fighting, as we'll get to see in his next chapter, which is pretty cool. But if we're looking at ships, we should probably include the first description of the silence. Here it is. And then he saw her. A single-masted galley, lean and low, with a dark red hull. Her sails, now filled, were black as a starless sky. Even at anchor, silence looked both cruel and fast. On her prow was a black iron maiden with one arm outstretched. Her waist was slender, her breasts high and proud, her legs long and shapely. A wind-blown mane of black iron hair streamed from her head, and her eyes were mother of pearl but she had no mouth. Oh, damn, this is a creepy-ass ship, isn't it? George gets our attention straight away with this one. The description of the prow is pretty stomach-churning for anyone who's read the Forsaken pre-release chapter, but Viterian's notes on the crew are almost as damning. For him, he dislikes them because of their nationality and the fact that he's an idiot to think such. For us, it's more the fact that they've had their tongues removed and the possibility of what they've seen in Valeria and other places. Well, you know, wherever they go with Euron, whatever they see him doing is probably going to be pretty bad. But the tongueless thing slots into a whole bunch of discussions, not only about the ship name, but whether that's a choice by Euron to conceal his worst crimes, or whether it links to the Varamir chapter, where someone being forcibly mind-warged will bite off their tongue. We'll pump the brakes a little bit on Euron here. We'll have to wait for next week to discuss most of those types of theories when we get a much better look at him. But still, it's worth thinking about. And this is where we learn about Victorian's third wife and her fate. And it's a, well, a mood killer, isn't it? Any chance we did have of liking this particular Greyjoy has gone straight out the window now. It raises the tension when we get this idea of withheld strength and fury towards Euron and what that could mean when they meet. And that meeting seems to be on the horizon coming towards us. But Balon told him not to kill Euron. Okay, but Balon isn't here anymore. So what will Victorion do? Here is George building up tension. Will he obey the curse? Or will he not be able to resist? George always has his turning the page for more answers, doesn't he? Another note on Victorion's uh, get-up here. Here's the quote. 
It was made of nine layers of cloth of gold, sewn in the shape of the kraken of the Greyjoys, arms dangling to his boots. Victorian donned a tall black warhelm, wrought in the shape of an iron kraken, its arms coiled down around his cheeks to meet beneath his jaw. And I just mentioned that because it sounds pretty cool. Nothing if not stylish and on brand. Anyway, when he actually reached the shore, Aeron is waiting, just like he was when Theon came home. It's a shame we have to deal with this guy again, because uh, I don't like him. But it seems like Victorian will obey the curse and resist harming Euron, but tension is still high because we can see how much he wants to. The Kinslayer curse works into the euron balon uh, dynamic as well, and whether Euron actually killed Balon, as Asha will challenge later on, she'll claim that. Victorian himself doesn't seem to consider that angle really at all. And obviously, Euron flies in the face of such superstitions, but what could this mean if Victorian discovers that Euron actually is a confirmed Kinslayer? I'm fairly sure this hasn't been addressed so far. Would that give Victorian the moral right to kill Euron in vengeance, or is he still restricted by the curse? I'm not sure how that works. And again, it's interesting how little he is seeking the crown. He's a bit like Stannis in that way. It's all duty. Duty to Balon, to the gods, the assembled captain. If they tell him what to do, he'll do it. But there's no burning desire there. Once among the others, we find our POV certainly is popular amongst the Ironborn. I suppose being the ultimate captain will do that for you. He's got all the ships, he's got the victories and the kills. And the armour, that probably helps. He's everything a good Ironborn appreciates. And we find he's even splitting the Harlor vote as we find him talking with Hofo Harlor. And we'd assumed all of them to be on Asher's side, so that's unfortunate. But we can see where Aaron's confidence has come from for Victorian to win. And we get also another update on Victorian's wives. Like I said, they're sprinkled in. Here's where we learn that he actually had three. We never learn anything more on the first two. But it's obvious the third one is what we're going to be focusing on going forward. And we have this quote. Yet when he tried to pitch her, he only saw the wife he'd killed. He had sobbed each time he struck her and afterward carried her down to the rocks to give her to the grabs. Oh, crikey. Yeah, yeah, this is definitely going to be a complicated, complex emotional and psychological issue for Victorian, And we're clearly not done learning about her just yet. Let's just be thankful that this poor offered up Harlow girl that Hofo's talking about doesn't end up with Victorian. There's a 12 year old that very nearly gets betrothed to uh, Victorian, but luckily that doesn't happen. So small victory. Let's take it where we can. Let's go from Hofo Harlow to Lord Baylor Blacktide. Here's his quote. Balon was mad. Aaron is madder, and Euron is maddest of them all, Lord Baylor said. What of you, Lord Captain? If I shout your name, will you make an end to this mad war? So that's a big quote here from Baylor Blacktide, who is quite popular among the fandom. It's an interesting take, quite similar to Roderick the Reader. It shows how divided the Iron Lions are, and that this is probably the much wiser course. Oh, what could have been if not for Euron? The Ironborn are more, more diverse and forward-thinking than we might initially give them credit for. A good chunk of them want to end the war, at least go a different way. Probably not enough to get Asha elected straight off, but the pairing option that she's going to present as a choice later on really would have brought a lot of people over the line. It's the best of both worlds, whereas Euron only has promises. So well done to Asha for thinking of the idea. Again, we'll explore that in a moment. Not well done for Victarion for being blinded to Asha's brilliance and dooming everyone to Euron. With no better alternative, the Ironborn fall back on their old tendencies. They might as well get some plunder out of all this misery, eh? And uh, <laughs> Victorian claims that in 100 years, people will be singing about Balon. No one is singing about Balon in 100 years, Victorian, I promise you that. It's a shame, because rereaders know that Balor Blacktoid isn't going to be lasting all that long. Euron will keep up his hiring practice of killing older family members, and then deterring who among that family are the most ambitious. Balor seems to have his head on straight, has a clear vision for the future, and actually has some morals. 
those types of people have no future with Euron. And as we just said, there are more of these types of thinkers than you'd think. But thanks to Euron's reactions, they go pretty quiet pretty fast. Luckily, it's Asha time. She comes along to save this chapter, and she's every bit as cool and confident as she was with Roderick. And losing battles too, Asha took a drink of wine. Victoria did not like to be reminded of Fair Isle. Every man should lose a battle in his youth, so he does not lose a war when he is old. That sounds like a pretty typical quote for losers of wars, doesn't it? Yeah, losers of battles anyway. And we also get this quick note that Asher has landed elsewhere and rowed across the island, and that might be the critical decision that leads her to being able to escape later on. Viterion does his best to impress his sexist, ancient, very ironborn views, and Asher doesn't bat an eyelid. She counts every point, making her own case that is really quite hard to deny. She is the total package, especially for those who do not want the war. And it seems even the many who who do want it finally want a different direction. So maybe she had a chance. It seems like the beginning of this chapter serves to make us think either Asher or Victarion could win. But then they are interrupted by a grand entrance. His hair was still black as a midnight sea, with never a white cap to be seen. And his face was still smooth and pale beneath his neat dark beard. A black leather patch covered Euron's left eye, but his right was blue as a summer sky. His smiling eye for Victarion. Crow's eye, he said. And I, I think it's worth mentioning here. You need to go and listen slash read Paul Quentin and his many, many theories about Euron. And others have also made such... Um, I will not be able to reach such lofty heights when we're looking to the future and what Euron represents in this series as a whole. So I would suggest you go and read all those. But uh, let's move on ourselves. That's quite the description, isn't it? And we meet a few of Euron's pals as well, who will be of note later on. For the man himself, it's defiance from the off. He says he sits the sea stone chair when he wants. He defies the gods by going out and finding others, which is already more than most of the ironborn can even conceive. And this is some of George's best, this quote here. You serve one god, damp hair, but I have served ten thousand. From ib to a shy, when men see my sails, they pray. This, so he completely just goes off the board, talking about killing gods and being better than them. It's completely outside the realm of normality, or outside the box for people to even consider. The ironborn... They just don't think about these things. And again, it, they, he is wondrous to them. He's really here to mix things up. And already, after just two or three paragraphs, Euron has completely claimed the dominance of this little gathering, this little pre-gathering. Any influence Aaron did have has just been halved, and his indignant reaction and storming out doesn't do him any favours in terms of catching votes. Euron turns on Asher as well, especially when she all but accuses him of Balon's murder. Euron goes to the trouble of denying it, but he's clearly got enough confidence that he doesn't need to think up too strong a story, he doesn't really care. Whereas Asha, well, she gets in uh, some zings on the cods, and, well, they do get a bad intro here, don't they? But the issue of Asha eventually having another husband is also being set up for her later fate, even if she does manage to get away and return to the north. But she defies each of his supporters too, and this, of all settings, so I think we should give her some more respect for having that kind of confidence. She's even willing to get her axe out over the matter, and she's so cool in this moment, I would definitely wager my money on her coming out a winner. But with Aeron gone, it falls to Victarion to actually keep things decent and not descend into a bloodbath. So, okay, well done for Victarion for doing that. Thus, Euron exits, leaving Victarion with one final dig about how he should win the King Kingsmoot. And sure enough, quite a few people choose to leave after him, including some that Victarion could have bound to himself earlier on instead of this. That just leaves Asher and Victarion together, strolling amongst their beloved ships. I wonder if Asher had won if Victarion would accept his place and serve her as he did Balon. I think they'd make for a great pairing if we could be sure that Victarion is all in. Asher is the better, clearly, but she definitely could have made use of him if she'd won. Asher, ever trying to help us out, 
tries to weed out why there is such bad blood between the two brothers, or why Euron has been away and outside their zone of control for so long. Unfortunately, Asha herself wipes away our dreams as she admits she will not win the King's Moot due to lack of support, or that's how it seems at least. She's again showing off her humility and clear thinking. I don't think any of the others would have such a reaction to a possible loss, would they? Instead of tantruming or killing or cock-measuring, Asha offers a partnership. I am of a mind to shout my uncle's name. Which uncle, he demanded. You have three. Four. Uncle, hear me. I will place the Driftrad crown on your brow myself, if you agree to share the rule. This is a pretty progressive idea, and to me this is the most interesting part of the chapter. Her mind is focused on the end goal, not her ego. Not, you know, for the most part, anyway. Again, separating herself. She's not even asking for straight up 50-50. She'll be hand, because at least someone knows the value such a position holds, as opposed to others in this book. She could still do great things. Unfortunately, that idea would be a hard sell for most places in Westeros, let alone the Iron Islands, and let alone with someone as thick-headed and as attached to structure as Victarion. It's just not going to happen with him. So we get to add to our list of reasons not to like Victarion, especially when he starts looking at Asha in a different, more sexual way. We do get a chance to learn about Asha's third course that she cheesed Roderick with. She will opt for peace and make many of the old lords happy, as we discussed earlier, but she will also work out a deal for some land in the north. Ending the war? Good thing. The best thing. Doing the deal with the Glovers? Well, they seem pretty cool, so I hope they are being genuine about this idea that Asha has, but who knows? Would a full-strength north allow the Ironborn to live on a part of their lands, even if it is one of the worst areas? It's a similar argument to setting the gift for the Wildlings. Maybe it could work with good leadership and strong defensive tactics, but I'd suspect the North would soon come running and driving them off. Still, having said that, it would be the greatest geographical expansion for the Ironborn in centuries, maybe even longer, so well done to Asher for the idea. Unfortunately, Victarion is just too pig-headed to see sense. Despite all her victories and success, Asher is still labelled a woman, gasp, and therefore nothing to do with war or rule. He doesn't even explicitly say why, is know that she's so stupid or weak-willed or, or something like that. It's merely just a case of a, a girl? It does not compute. And, and that's an incredibly unfair assumption and um, labelling, given all that Asher has done. Yet that doesn't knock her back. She stays right on track. For Victorian himself, we see, again, he really doesn't want the crown to do something with it. Does he have a policy, a goal? What will he achieve? There's nothing. It's just um, oh, I'll do whatever Balon did. I'll just copy his homework. To be fair, more of the same seems pretty central to Ironborn life, so we can see why men like Balon and Victarion have kept the ashes of history down. Another quote about the uh, the third wife here. He put a baby in her belly and made me do the killing. Oh dear, this just gets worse and worse, doesn't it? Somehow this story of Victarion's wife is a slow burn reveal, with George making it worse and worse with every step. Now we have a new layer that he not only killed a woman, but a pregnant woman, and his hatred stems from Euron sleeping with her. Did the wife come willingly to Euron? Well, it's probably best we don't wonder. For Victorian, either possibility is horrifying. But if nothing else, it really shows us how dedicated he is to the Kingslayer curse. To have your brother do that to you and let him live, instead directing the punishment to a woman who might well have been a victim instead of an adulterer, that's very representative attitudes towards women in this society, and unfortunately, all too similar to Randall's thoughts last week, isn't it? I am sorry for you, said Asher, and sorry for her, but you leave me small choice but to claim the sea stone chair myself. You cannot. Your breath is yours to waste, woman. It is, she said, and left him. Damn right it's your breath, Asher. You do what you want of it. 
The partnership idea was superb, but if people insist on being so sexist and narrow-minded about good opportunities, then fine, she'll do it her own way. She's also smart enough to see how broken a man Victorian is, how tidy is to the memory of vengeance that he can never reveal. So, that's our introduction to Victorian, but I actually kind of sneakily claim this as an Asher chapter because, well, I just love her so much more. I don't want to wait, which I have to. Okay, that is today's episode, everybody. That is our four chapters. That is very quickly look at what we've come next week which is really like i say kind of the hinge i i see it it's not quite halfway but i see it in my mind as halfway and yeah it is where everything changes for at least these two big plots in the ironborn and the uh, dornish as well we all have the drowned man the king's moon yeah unfortunately we've got to deal with Aaron again then brienne four another classic wow the queen maker chapter one of my personal favorites and we will see Aya again with Aya 2 which is always nice in it they're so rare so we look forward to that next week thank you again for coming to join get in touch if you like have a look at the patron if you like thank you to our wonderful patron and you have no choice i demand you go and have a look at radio westeros and give them all the due that they are worth which is a lot because they are amazing and again i thank them for inviting me on to talk winds of winter and the prologue yay riverlands talk Okay, you can hear my voice is on its way out, so I will go and edit this and get it ready for you, and I will see you next time. See you later, everyone.